0: All right, now take your Bible and open to uh, Psalm 42. We are returning here to our study, Psalm 42 and a little bit of Psalm 43. This is the third and final time in this little series. I am uh, intentionally moving slowly through this uh, text uh, because the psalmist speaks to the issue of uh, extreme discouragement and depression. I think it's an issue that probably all of us at some point uh, deal with at some level. Uh, at some point we get depressed, discouraged, down on the dumps, or whatever you want to entitle it. Uh, we feel perhaps that God has uh, forsaken us. And uh, we feel perhaps even, maybe even at times we'll never get back on track again with God. So the psalmist addresses that issue and he encourages our heart and, and tells us how to deal with that kind of a situation and how we too can overcome these kind of feelings when they come up upon us and we're overwhelmed by the complexities of life. It's always difficult when you're the preacher and you have to apply your own sermon uh, to your own life. (laughs) Those of you who preach, you go, yeah, I got it. I I haven't even left a room last night or last Sunday evening where I'm already applying uh, these things into my life as my son comes in and tells me uh, his car just died. (laughs) yeah, and and, uh, I don't know. They seem to work better when you put oil in them. But it's it's just a thought, right? So I mean, we all got issues, right? We're all dealing with certain kinds of things all the time, and how do you deal with it? And sometimes, it's never. I mean, sometimes it is the big things, but a lot of time, isn't it, just the death by a thousand paper cuts? You know, it's just little things over and over and over again. So I'm thankful. As I read through this afternoon, through the notes, I, I was encouraged by God's word and encouraged my heart. So I hope it encourages your heart. So again, the psalmist is telling us how to deal with these kind of situations, how to overcome the feelings that come upon us often in life, and. Again, just when we're overwhelmed with the complexities of life. And very simply, just in the face of mounting trials and difficulties uh, uh, that devastated the psalmist's heart, uh, he rallies his soul and he looks up to God. Uh, He has a great discouragement, and although he has great discouragement, he realizes that comfort and consolation that he receives from God is even greater than his problems. And and as I've said a couple times, the psalmist, or the psalm here really describes the upward look of the downcast soul— And that's a good phrase to look at, the upward look of the downcast soul that finds its peace and trust in God. So uh, these psalms here are are wise counsel that God gives us about trusting him in tough times. Now, we made it down to about verse 7 last time we were together, so let me just kind of read through that just to get our minds back around it. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, uh, Psalm 42, verse 1. For the choir director, the subscript superscript says, a mascal of the sons of Korah, as a deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, and while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go along with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving and a multitude of keeping festivals. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember Thee from the land of the Jordan, from the peaks of Hermon, and from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sounds of your waterfalls, and all your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Again, verse 7 Deep calls to deep. The sound of your waterfalls and your breakers, your waves have rolled over me. It's uh, uh, really uh, a man who's overwhelmed by the trials of life. But in the midst of being overwhelmed by the trials of life, he really acknowledges that at that point the sovereignty of God in in the midst of his difficulties, in the midst of his trials. uh, The psalmist, again, look very carefully, admits that these waves belong to God himself. Your waterfalls, your breakers, your waves— Again, he understands the fact that God is sovereign in all situations. Therefore, he places his hope and his confidence in God, in the sovereignty of God. And that's where we're going to start from this point forward, the sovereignty of God. Now, let me quickly go back and just kind of quickly recap, and not really much in depth, but let me at least give you some of the highlights that we've been talking about or we've discovered as we've made our way up to this point. Again, the picture the psalmist shows us is one, again, of being depressed. And he, although he's depressed, he's not going to stay there. He's going to confront his depression, his discouragement. And then if we follow, again, his example, then we too will be able to deal with these kind of depressive or times of depression, discouragement, when they come into our life. I told you the first step in dealing with and conquering depression is you have to admit it. You have to admit it, then you have to confront yourself and ask yourself this question. And the psalmist asked himself three times the same question. You see it in verse 5, you see it in verse 11, then you see it in verse 5 of chapter 43. Why are you in despair? O oh, my soul, why are you downcast? Why have you become disturbed or anxious within me? Why, why is my heart so sad? And I listed a number of reasons, uh, possible causes for depression. Sometimes I said There's a certain tendency towards depression or despondency by personality. Um, Some people tend to be a little more introverted. They tend to look to be a little more introspective. And and while a little bit of self-examination is okay, uh, too much of it it becomes paralyzing. Uh, Too much time centered on ourselves, focused on ourselves becomes dangerous. But people who are more introverted than extroverted, they tend to be a bit... Uh, more introspective, they tend to be a bit more prone to melancholy and sadness and depression. Now, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you if you have that personality type. Uh, it just means you need to understand yourself. Uh, you just need to understand your personality. You need to recognize what's true about who you are, what's true about yourself. Now, I gave another reason, another possible cause of depression. Uh, it's because of spiritual burdens that sometimes we carry uh, whether for ourselves or, or those who are caring for other people. And I gave you many examples from the life of Spurgeon, uh, who's uh, typical of many pastors, many elders, uh, sometimes just in the course of life, in the course of studying and preaching and shepherding and counseling. Uh, um, sometimes uh, all, all those, all, all those uh, activities are, are really spiritual in nature, and sometimes the weight of that can become very heavy. Uh, it can cause great discouragement. And if you're a leader, then by the very definition of a leader means that you're going to be out in front. Therefore, you're somewhat of a solitary man. Uh, Sometimes encouragement is not coming uh, from those around you because God's only or only God who's there in the midst of the solitude of the situation. again, you look at the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and look at him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, He would look in vain for human comfort there in the garden because of his disciples are all asleep. And the burden of the hour is pressed upon Christ and his companions are slumbering they have no idea of the agony that he's about to endure and in the solitude of his soul he finds himself alone with God but loneliness and leadership is really not uncommon therefore it can be at times fertile soil for depression as God uses weak men men of passions that are often discouraged or face discouragement Yet he uses weak men in his wisdom and he uses them to be vessels of his grace. And I think for us who are in that position, <clears throat> and again, I'm speaking to my own heart, I just need, we just need to realize it's somewhat of an occupational hazard, uh, especially when you're bearing the burdens of others. I said sometimes depression comes from physical uh, conditions. And on, uh, I listed for you some of the struggles that Spurgeon went through physically. Uh, Some of the physical problems he had, he had great problems, great times of intense pain, excruciating pain. Uh, And so obviously physical infirmity often leads to depression. Uh, Physical problems can very easily work their way into mental problems, melancholy, discouragement, uh, depression. Uh, I said sometimes there can be a combination. Sometimes depression comes from a combination of these things that can cause us to be discouraged or depressed. And sometimes we don't even know why. We don't know what the issue is behind our discouragement. It just comes. I think Spurgeon called it causeless depression. Sometimes depression comes from, uh, um, or or discouragement comes from certain highs or or lows, even after great spiritual battles that we've won. Sometimes even the enemy of our soul comes, who's always looking to accuse us and try to encourage us in a negative fashion uh, to uh, look at ourselves and to rest in our emotions, rather than to look to God and to Christ and to trust the truth found in God's word. So again, the psalmist says, why are you in despair? Why are you downcast? Why do you feel hopeless? Why, uh, oh oh my soul, why are you disturbed within me? Why are you anxious? So the psalmist confronts himself. He admits the fact that he is depressed, and again, that's the first step in dealing with depression. You recognize it, and then you confront it. The second step I said in dealing with depression is you speak to yourself you speak to your soul and again that's exactly what the psalmist does he confronts his own soul Uh, verse five it says again hope in God hope in God for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence so he commands himself he commands his own heart to put his trust in God put his hope in God and then he makes the uh, intentional decision to praise God he makes the intentional decision to praise God hope in God for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. And I was thinking to myself this week, how much different would our lives be if we actually did that very thing? Psalm 103, verse 2 says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. The question is, when is the last time you did that? When is the last time you did that, especially when you're discouraged, depressed, downcast? praise the lord O my soul forget none of his benefits what if in times of difficulty in times of depression times of discouragement what if we actually did that what if you actually did what the psalmist is commanding praise the lord O my soul and forget none of his benefits what if you praise god and you literally listed all of his benefits down towards you instead of rehashing over in your mind all of your trials all of your difficulties all of your issues I wonder what difference or how much of a difference that might make in our countenance, uh, in, in our souls. Because your size can give away to song in the morning and to temple praises, as someone has said. Our size can give away to songs. We can be obedient. We can do exactly what God commands us to do. We can praise him. Always. Praise the Lord, O my soul, forget none of his benefits. You're familiar with this out of Philippians 4. You're familiar with Paul's words, Philippians 4, verse 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Where was he writing that? Do you know? From prison, right? Paul writes the book of Philippians from prison. Therefore, the praise of the rejoicing in God is a choice that we must make. Paul goes on in Philippians 4, verse 6, he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Dealing with depression, we need to speak to ourselves. We need to command our hearts. Number three, in order to deal with depression, we need to start thinking biblically, and we need to start thinking biblically about everything about our circumstances, about our troubles, about our situation, about God. We intentionally need to go against our feelings, intentionally go against our emotions. We can't be led by them because they are untrustworthy. We have to think biblically and act biblically and respond biblically. And again, we need to talk to ourselves biblically. Again, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Have you not realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Have you not realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? We need to talk to ourselves from <coughs> biblical truth because, again, feelings lie. F- feelings are not a reliable source of information. One of the books that I read in part, at least, uh, to encourage my heart and to kind of stimulate my thinking in this whole area is a wonderful book, and I highly recommend it to you. It's written by Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's called Spiritual Depression, <clears throat> Its Causes and Cures. Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. And it really comes from his work of studying both Psalm 42 and 43. It's quite a bit of helpful information, and in it. it's 21 chapters in length. Uh, again, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's also recorded. There's a Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust that you can uh, actually, an app you can get and download the, reco- download the recordings from the Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust and you can list, uh, listen to that series. It's under spiritual depression. Highly recommend the book. And in that book, over and over again, Lloyd-Jones brings forth different issues, that, um, things that we need to consider when we find ourselves discouraged, depressed. When we're asking that question, why are you depressed? Why are you downcast oh my soul? And in that book, Lloyd-Jones says this. He says the main art of the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you downcast? What business have you to be disquieted? You must say to yourself, hope in God, instead of muttering and being depressed and unhappy. You must remind yourself of God, who he is, what he has done, and what he has pledged himself to do. That's a tremendous statement, right? That's biblical thinking applied into our life. Biblical truth applied into our life because we have to live our lives according to the truth, according to biblical truth. Again, emotions or feelings are an important part of who we are, but they have to be handled properly. Because emotions or feelings make great havoc uh, of uh, many people's lives and brought great tragedy into people's lives because they've allowed their emotions or their feelings to be out of place. Feelings, listen, feelings are never meant to take first place in our lives. Feelings are never meant to be central in our lives. And if you put them in that place uh, uh, up front or in the central position, then you're doomed. Because feelings are always the result of something else or someone else, some outward, uh, outside influence. And and you want your life to be guided as much as possible by truth, biblical truth. Obviously, divine truth, biblical truth, the truth addressed uh, in in the Bible from the mind of God to us first addresses our mind. And our mind is God's supreme gift to us as men. And when the mind is guided, directed, filled with biblical truth, then our hearts are going to be affected. But apart from biblical truth, our hearts won't be touched. So again, when we find ourselves overwhelmed, depressed, discouraged, uh, um, instead of allowing our feelings to dominate ourselves, we need to speak to ourselves. We need to remind ourselves of biblical truth. We need to inform the mind, then the heart will follow And we need to realize that our responsibility is never uh, to make ourselves feel happy. Uh, Our job is to believe truth. Our job is to believe God's word. When we're believing God's truth, when we're believing his words, when we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, as Christ says in Matthew chapter 5, then we'll be blessed. Then we'll be happy. When we believe upon biblical truth and we act upon biblical truth, When when we live by biblical truth, our hearts are changed because our minds are informed. So again, not to be led by emotions, but to be led by truth. Because when we're led by truth through the Bible, that takes us to the person of truth, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, the next time you're discouraged or depressed, instead of commiserating with yourself, instead of trying to work up some kind of false emotion uh, that doesn't exist, you need to go to God's word. I'll rephrase that. We need to go to God's word, right? We We need to go to God's word. We need to open his word open the Bible because if we take if we open the Bible, it takes us right into the presence of God and the presence of Christ. And again, in Christ, by Christ, and in his presence where joy is found. That's where true happiness is found. And at the same time we open the 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 book and takes us to the person of Christ, I think at the same time we have to repeatedly remind ourselves of the gospel. Because the the gospel is not just good news of eternal life after you die, but the gospel affects the entirety of our lives in time and into eternity. When we stop to think of God and his goodness and his great kindness to us through Christ uh, when we think that our sin has been forgiven by God in Christ. Uh, That encourages our hearts. And when we realize that our our, our spirits have been made new, we're new creations in Christ— Old things pass away, all things new have come. That has to positively affect our heart, our mind, our will. It's the truth of the gospel that transforms and changes our life, again, in time and in eternity. Therefore, it has to affect our life on a daily basis. Because once we know the truth, again, the truth will move our hearts. And once our heart is encouraged, then our greatest desire will be to live out biblical truth with a desire to glorify Christ always in all things. Because, again, the heart's always influenced by understanding Listen, feelings don't belong in the center of our lives. The only one who has the right to be in the center of our life is the Lord of glory himself. Feelings don't belong in the center of our life. Only Christ does. The one who has loved both you and me so much that he has died for us. The one who has come from eternity into time to bear our punishment and our shame uh, and, and our sin upon Calvary's cross. We're to seek him. We're to seek Christ and his kingdom first. Then everything else will be added to us. What? the Lord says so again if we're discouraged if we're depressed we need to arouse ourselves to trust God because he's our only hope our only hope no matter how difficult our circumstances might be so again step number one when dealing with depression you recognize it then you confront yourself and you ask the question why are you in despair O oh my soul or what right have you to become uh, disturbed or disquieted within me Secondly, you confront your soul, you command your soul, you arouse yourself to seek God. Rouse yourself means you get up out of the chair and you do the right thing, right? Instead of just wallowing in misery. You rouse yourself to seek God because he is your only hope, he's your only help. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. And thirdly, you think biblically about everything. Think biblically about everything, all of our life, all of our circumstances, all of our troubles. About God, the fact that God does love me fact that god loves me he's proven that he's promised also never to leave me or forsake me again no matter how discouraging my situation or circumstances may be we have to choose to believe in god and his word rather than to be moved by our emotions or controlled by our emotions or governed by our circumstances and then we need to stick with it look again you'll notice there in the psalms <clears throat> there's these four cycles of lament and hope and you kind of see them repeated. Uh, um, the lament comes in the first four verses uh, um, uh, uh, of uh, Psalm 41 or 42, verse one. As a deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for Thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, and while they say to me all day long, "Where is your God?" These things I remember. I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go to the throng and uh, along with the throng and lead them in the procession in the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving and the multitude-keeping festival. And then comes the hope, the lament and the hope. Why are you in despair? Verse 5, O my soul, why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. You see the same thing in verses 6 and 7. You see the lament. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember thee from the lands of the Jordan, from the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls deep, but the sound of thy waterfalls and thy breakers and thy waves rolled over me the lament and then you have the hope again found in verse 8 the lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and the song will be with me in the night and a prayer to god of the god of my life i mean this pattern is repeated over and over again you see the the same pattern the lament in verses 9 and 10 uh, why uh, i will say to my soul or say to my god my rock why have you forgotten me i go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemies the shattering of my bones the adversaries revile me While they say to me all day long where's your god And then the hope comes, verse 11. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disquieted within me or disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise him for the help of my countenance. You see the same thing in chapter uh, 43. The lament, uh, chapter 43, verse 1. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. Deliver me from the deceitfulness of unjust men. For thou art the God of my strength. Why hast thou rejected me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of my enemy. The answer again the hope comes in the next uh, couple verses Uh, verse 3 send out thy light and thy truth and let them lead me let them bring me into the holy hill thy holy hill thy dwelling place then i will go to the altar of god to god my exceeding joy upon the lyre i shall praise thee O god my god why are you in despair on my soul why have you become disturbed within me hope in god for i shall praise him the help of my countenance Uh, again he just repeats he just sticks with the whole issue I'm going to confront myself, I'm going to ask myself what is wrong, why do I find myself in this condition, I'm going to speak to my heart and command it to hope on God and to trust in him, and then I'm going to think biblically about all of my life and about my situations. And again, to realize or to think biblically, you have to begin with the, the realization that God is sovereign over everything. And if you're going to think biblically in the midst of your trial, again, you have to affirm the sovereignty of God. And again, that's what the psalmist does. We'll go back to verse 7, and we'll kind of pick it up there and move forward, right? That's exactly what the psalmist does. Again, i read through it a couple times, but deep calls to deep. The sound of your waterfalls, all your breakers, and all your your waves have rolled over me. So the, the, the writer's overwhelmed, right? He's drowning. That's what it's like. And deep calls to deep. It's like a drowning man in the midst of a... Uh, of a raging storm he's clinging on to whatever floats and and then just wave of trouble and heartache and uh, sadness just keeps pounding him and pounding him but in the midst of the difficulty uh, he affirms god's sovereignty your waterfalls your breakers your waves, and that's entirely significant because the psalmist is admitting admitting that all of his troubles have been sent and directed by god in order to achieve God's design or God's purposes in his life. And the same thing is true for all of us. Trials come into our life for our good, for our benefit, in order to free us from the attachment we have to this fallen world, and in order to drive us to Christ. Now, we don't always see that when we're going through the difficulty. And most certainly, at the time, we don't understand James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. I wonder if that's a misprint. Right? How, how can we have joy in the midst of our trials? Because in our flesh we do everything we can to avoid trials. We do everything we can to avoid suffering. Nobody likes suffering. Nobody likes pain. But it comes in a fallen world. In fact, the Bible tells us if we're a follower of Christ, we should expect persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And while we try to avoid problems, situations, persecution in this world, we shouldn't expect to be free from them, especially persecution, because that's coming. You live in a fallen world with wicked men who hate God, who hate Christ, who hate God's people. We live in a fallen world where our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. He's always seeking someone to devour. And our God is conforming us to the image of his Son, to the image of Christ, who was a man of sorrows, who was acquainted with grief. The Lord Jesus was very much personally aware of suffering. He was very much personally acquainted with unjust suffering. And the more we look like Christ, the longer we walk with the person of Jesus Christ, the more we're being conformed to the image of Christ, the more likely we are to meet trouble in this world. You look at the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was sinless. He did no evil. He did nothing wrong. Again, no sin to be found in him. All he did was good. Spent the entirety of his life doing good for people, healing people, touching people with infirmities, curing them, benefiting them. Preached the gospel. Preach that God wants to reconcile men to himself, that there's good news, that Men could be saved, they could have a new life, be saved from the wrath to come. And what happened to him? The world murdered him, right? The innocent one. Again, the world hates Christ, the world hates the Christian. Because Christ made sinners feel uncomfortable. Christ made sinners feel uncomfortable because he was holy. Christ made sinners feel uncomfortable because he said he came to seek and save the lost, and unholy men don't want to hear that. And unholy men hated him for that, and they murdered him. And the Bible tells us the world would do the same to us. First Peter four three says, For time is already past, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, less drunkenness, carousals, drinking, parties, and abominable idolatries. Verse four, first Peter four, verse four. And on all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation that they may malign you. They're astonished, uh, one translation says, they're astonished when you don't rush with them to do the same kind of flood of wickedness that they're involved with, therefore they're going to vilify you. Another says they think it's strange that you don't plunge into the same kind of flood of dissipation, therefore they heap abuse on you. Anytime you don't go along with the world and its wickedness, there's going to be a confrontation. Christ himself, it happened to him over again. The, the Apostle Paul, all the great men through history, the history of the church, history of the New Testament, uh, they pursued righteousness, they pursued holiness, Christ's likeness in the world vilified them. They heaped abuse upon them. They, they were persecuted by the world. But we are called to remember the truth and to be encouraged by the truth. Peter says, 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to attain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved for you in heaven, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. In this, he says, verse 6, 1 Peter 1, verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. The proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So trials prove our faith. And there's a very definite plan and purpose for trials. Again, nothing comes into our life by way of accident. Nothing comes into our life by way of chance. Everything comes into our life through the hands of our loving Heavenly Father. And again, he's the one who's conforming us to the image of Christ. He's the one who's bringing us to perfection. He's the one who's working out all things together for good, for our good, and for His glory in our lives. So, when trials and difficulties come into our lives, again, again it, uh, 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 to come into our lives again, it's always under the direction of God's loving hand. He's drawing us away from the world and drawing us closer to Him, closer to Christ. And again, you see that all throughout the Scripture. You, you see men who suffered unjustly. Think of Joseph. Uh, think of all the difficulties he went through in his life, the, the, the trials in his life, his tribulations. But they, all, they made him the man he needed to be in order to perform the task that God had ordained for him. Again, he'd done nothing wrong, and everybody sinned against him. Even his brothers sinned against him. But again, God was preparing him for the uh, work that he had, the, the great position that he had him to do. To be in uh, in a future to save the nation, save the line of the Messiah, you see the same kind of situation in the lives of Abraham or Moses, or the same kind of thing true without question, in the New Testament, Paul with all of his sufferings, all his trials that he went through. you, you read second Corinthians chapter eleven, second Corinthians uh, chapter twelve, and all of the struggles that he went through in part made him to be the man that God designed him to be for the task at hand for him. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11:23 says, "In far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews, thirty-nine lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and the night I've spent in the deep. I've been in frequent journeys, dangers from the rivers, dangers and robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers." In the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. He was a man who I'm sure suffered spiritual depression for the burden he was carrying for other people. Besides all the stuff that was going on in his own life. But trials strengthen our faith. Our faith. Trials strengthen our faith. And we need to understand that again in this you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while if necessary you have been distressed by various trials that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ says Peter in 1st Peter chapter 1. So Peter says you know gold's precious but not as precious as faith. Because gold is something that ultimately vanishes. It's temporary. But faith is eternal. Faith is something that's everlasting. Faith is the thing by which you live. Faith is the thing that accounts for you being uh, in in the Christian life. The whole of life is a a matter of faith. We walk by faith. Faith is what links us to God. And and when the heat is turned up, if you will, uh, 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 on on gold, the, the... The person who's um, trying to to, uh, melt the gold is trying to pull out the impurities, right? Same thing is true in our life when we face trials. The heat of trials, when they're turned up in our lives, uh, they're to drive away any impurity. And the result of that heat, the result of that trial is the praise and the glory and honor of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because again, trials are meant to draw us to Christ. Trials are meant to strengthen our faith. Our faith. And in order to do that, we need to have some understanding of exactly what faith is and how faith is to be exercised. Now, initially, we understand that faith is the gift of God, that he allows us to enter into the relationship with him in the Christian life. Uh, I read it this morning, Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, and no one should boast. So God gives us the gift of faith, but then we have to walk in that gift. Again, we're to walk by faith, not by sight sometimes i think um, i'm pretty much convinced we don't understand the nature of faith uh, even as believers and there's an incident that happens in luke chapter 8 that i think is very insightful that helps us get a better understanding of this idea of faith so put a put a mark there in psalm 42 and turn the new testament to the book of luke and I need to move through it kind of quick obviously just for our time but Luke 8 starting in verse 22 Luke 8 verse 22 now it came about on one of those days that he and his disciples got into a boat and he said to them let us go to the over over to the other side of the lake and they launched out but as they were sailing along he fell asleep and a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake, and they began to be swamped and be endangered. In Mark's version of the story, in Mark 4, verse 37, says there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Now, we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ obviously often here. There's nobody like him, and he is the God-man. But in his humanity, he's fatigued so much so that he is asleep in the midst of the storm and the storm has arisen and he's still sleeping. Verse 24 of Luke 8, verse 24, they came to him and woke him up and said to him, Master, Master, we are perishing. Again, in Mark's version, Mark 4, verse 38, it says, Teacher, do you not care we're perishing? Being aroused, he rebuked the wind and the surging waves and they stopped and it became calm. And he said to them, where is your faith and they were fearful and amazed saying to one another who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him who then is this now obviously he's much more than just a good man he's much more than just a teacher he is the lord of glory he is the eternal son he is uh, the god man and I think in the particular incidents here in uh, Luke 8, we learn something about faith. Because the men are in the boat, and they're traveling across the lake. The storm comes up to the point where the boat is taking on water, they're, they're starting to sink. Uh, they've attempted to bail out the, the boat, but it's to no avail. They can't bail out the water fast enough. They're in deep trouble. And the master is soundly asleep in the stern of the vessel. And again, verse 24, they came to him and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And it's really, again, like it says in Mark's version, Lord, don't you care? Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? We, we're about to die here. Why aren't you concerned about us in our situation? So again, being aroused, he rebuked the wind and the surging waves. They stopped. They became calm. And then again, verse 25, he said, where's your faith? Mark's version, why are you so timid? Why is it that you have no faith? Obviously, he's rebuking them. He's rebuking their faith. Why do you have so little faith? Why are you in a state of alarm and a state of terror? Why are you in a state of agitation? It's a great question. Why are you in despair, oh my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Now, the non believer. They're worried, they're anxious, they're agitated, they're alarmed, they're in terror, they're depressed when trials come upon them because they don't know what to do because they have nowhere to turn. And worry and anxiousness and fear and terror, that's a typical reaction of the unbeliever. But that should not be the reaction for the believer. Because as believers, we have something the unbeliever doesn't have, or more properly, we have someone the unbeliever doesn't have we have God and if we have God we have what? hope we have hope I cannot overemphasize the point too strongly who is in the boat with these men not just a mere man not just a great teacher not just some moral philosopher but it's the Lord of Glory it's the creator it's the master of all And think about in their time that they lived with him when he walked on the earth and they walked together with him in his ministry, they'd seen him over and over do things that no mere man could do. He healed the sick, he gave sight to the blind, he even raised the dead, cast out demons, he created something out of nothing when he created food and fed the multitudes on several different occasions. These men had personally seen Christ not only exercise his power over the natural realm, but they'd seen him exercise his power over the supernatural realm. And not only that, listen, they had seen him demonstrate great compassion repeatedly over and over towards men. They had seen him display his love for people. They had seen him, and this maybe doesn't sound too profound, but I'm telling you, it is overwhelmingly profound. They'd seen him touch the leper because nobody touches a leper. The religious leaders of Israel certainly aren't touching the leper. He touched the leper. They'd seen his power, they'd seen him demonstrate great compassion and love for people over and over again. So storms come up, a trial, and they're fearful. They're they're afraid they're going to die, and the Lord is asleep in the stern of the boat. Master, we're about to die. Why don't you care? Why don't you do something? Why don't you display your power? Why don't you love us anymore? Why aren't you concerned about us in the situation we find ourselves in? Being aroused, he rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm, and he said to them, where is your faith? Now, again, as believers, we should never find ourselves in a position, no matter what the circumstances are, where we are anxious where we're alarmed and terror agitated because the son of god is what with us he's in the boat with these guys but he's with us right he's promised to never leave us or forsake us where's your faith so the question is has the lord suddenly changed Has the Lord suddenly changed? Has he lost his love and compassion for us as his people in the midst of the difficulty? In the midst of the difficulty, has he lost his power or his ability to deal with your problems? Or maybe your problems are just too big for him to handle. So in the midst of the trial or the difficulty, whatever it might be in our life, we can allow self to talk to us or circumstances to talk to us or circumstances to dictate our reactions to elicit certain emotions or what we can speak to ourselves the truth we can speak to ourselves the truth we can command our hearts and speak truth to our heart and command our soul to hope in god in the midst of the difficulty and in the midst of the difficulty we can either believe lies or we can believe the truth We can either believe lives or we can believe the one who's promised that no one or no thing will ever separate us from his love is always with us. And again, again, when he says, where is your faith? In essence, he's saying to these men, my followers have no right to be anxious. You as my followers, you have no right to be anxious. Even when you're going through difficulties, there's no reason to be alarmed because lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So again, the the second lesson I think you learn from this story, Uh, when Christ asked that question, where's your faith? The question really is, why don't you trust me? Don't you trust me anymore? Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Again, the, the question implies a lack of trust, a lack of confidence in Christ, a lack of faith in his concern for them and care for them in the midst of their difficulties. And I think, sadly, the truth is we all find ourselves at various times in this very same situation. Where's God in the midst of my trouble? Why doesn't he care? Why isn't he doing anything? Why doesn't he do something? Again, all implied is a lack of trust, a lack of faith and confidence in God, which is exactly what I said last time, the ultimate cause of all spiritual depression, the ultimate cause, again, there may be a variety of underlying causes, but the ultimate cause is really unbelief. Unbelief causes us to listen to the lies of the devil rather than to listen to what we know to be true about God from his word, right? The cause of our depression ultimately is unbelief. So again, life is full of difficulties and troubles, trials. Again, you see it over and over again, repeated in the lives of many people in the Bible. And great men of God always have endured what, uh, uh, the trials of faith, that's what Lloyd-Jones calls them, the trials of faith. You look and you see different times in people's lives, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jacob, they all endured trials of faith, God perfecting them. So God gives us the gift of faith, and then that faith is tried, it's tested to the various circumstances. And again, the reason Peter says, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ." So God tests our faith to prove its genuineness. And when your salvation is genuine, when it's an eternally real thing, not only is it more precious than gold, but it results in joy in the life of the believer. Because in the midst of difficulty, genuine believers still honor God. They give him praise. They praise Christ in the midst of their difficulties. And again, it's only a genuine believer who can do that. False converts won't. False converts won't do that. False converts can't do that. People who are caught up in cults can't do that. They won't do that. Only genuine believers rejoice in the midst of their troubles. And again, the only way that we can do that, in in part, is when we find ourselves in a situation where faith is being tested and tried, and we realize, again, that in the storms of life, the trials of life, they're allowed by God, and he's the sovereign. He is in control of all the events. Again, what does the psalmist say? Your waterfalls, your breakers, your waves have overwhelmed me. He understands that it's God who permits the storm. It's God who permits the difficulties. It's God who ordains them. It's God who permits the wind to blow and the billows to roll over us and the boat to fill up with water. Again, when everything seems like it's going wrong and we ourselves are in jeopardy, our lives are in jeopardy, uh, again, we shouldn't be s- totally surprised uh, uh, by that in the fallen world. Uh, in Christ, in John sixteen thirty three, says, In the world you're going to have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I have what? Overcome the world. Paul takes it a bit further. He tells uh, uh, the Philippians, Philippians uh, verse, chapter chapter 1, verse 29, Unto you it's been given on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. Paul and Barnabas, in their missionary journey, visiting various churches, they warned them in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, verse 22, Acts 14, verse 22, we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. So again, just because we're believers doesn't mean we're free from trouble in a fallen world. It doesn't mean we're free from difficulties. Uh, again, the question, the improper question should never be asked by a believer is why. Why is this happening to me? What we need to realize, in speaking truth to ourselves, is God's sovereign always over everything. He's always in control. The Lord goes to sleep in the boat and allows the storm to come. Things may seem desperate, things may seem like they're all against us. The winds may be blowing and billows may be coming. We feel like we're being drowned, that the water's coming into the ship, we're sinking master do you not care we are perishing are you not concerned and listen to me the biblical answer overwhelmingly is yes do you care the answer is yes i have loved you from eternity i love you in time and i will love you in the eternal future and from me no one or no thing will ever be able to separate you from my love that's the truth that's the truth that we have to believe. That's the truth we have to speak to our heart. That's the truth we have to command our heart to believe in. Trials come. We live in a fallen world. Trials come by the sovereign hand of a good God, and they come into our life to purify us. Our Father in Heaven allows these trials. Our Father in Heaven who loves us, so much so that he would give his only begotten son. right? Now, our, our Father in Heaven who loves us, who is absolute, always in control of every event, These trials, again, they come into our life in part to teach us not to trust ourselves, to free us from a fallen world, and then to trust in him and to trust in Christ alone. James says, James 1, 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Trials push us to Christ. You didn't remember the Spurgeon and what he said about sovereignty, the unwavering belief he had over God's sovereignty in his life. Fate is blind, providence has eyes. It would very, be a very sharp and trying experience for me to think that I have an affliction, which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. So, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of struggles, physical and emotional, Spurgeon placed his confidence in God, in the sovereignty of God. Spurgeon placed his hope in God, again, in the God who's sovereign. And very basically, the sovereignty of God says that God orders everything, God controls everything, God overrules everything. God, being infinitely elevated above all creation and every creature, He is the most high Lord of heaven and earth. Thwarted by no one, no one stands against him in his power. No one, he is subject to no one, he is influenced by no one, he is absolutely and totally independent of everyone. And God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. Spurgeon, speaking to the sovereignty of God, said, There's no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their affliction, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them. There is nothing for which the, chi- the children uh, ought to more earnestly be confronted than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all of the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. Master, we're perishing. Why don't you care? Aren't you concerned? Being aroused, he rebuked the wind and the surging waves. They stopped. They came calm. And he said, why aren't you trusting me? Where's your faith? Why aren't you trusting me? Jerry Bridges has a very helpful book. I assume perhaps you're at least familiar with it. Maybe some of you even read it. It's called Trusting God. Bridges says this. He says, I acknowledge it often seems more difficult To trust God than to obey Him. The moral will of God given to us in the Bible is rational and reasonable. The circumstances in which we must trust God often appear irrational and inexplicable. The law of God is readily recognized to be good for us, and even when we don't want to obey it, the circumstances of our lives frequently appear to be dreadful and grim, or perhaps even calamitous and tragic. Obeying God is worked out in well defined boundaries. Of God's revealed will. Trusting God is worked out in an arena that has no boundaries. We do not know the extent, the duration, or the frequency of the painful, adverse circumstances in which we must frequently trust God. We're always coping with the unknown, yet it is just as important to trust God as it is to obey Him. When we disobey God, we defy His authority, we despise His holiness, but when we fail to trust God, we doubt His sovereignty and question His goodness. In both cases, we cast aspersion upon his majestic character. God views our distrust of him as seriously as he views our disobedience. Bridges goes on in that book and talks about the fact that for us to trust God, we have to view our circumstances again through the eyes of faith. That just as faith, the faith of salvation comes through hearing the message of the gospel, so to When we trust God, the faith to trust God when adversity comes, comes through the word of God, comes through the word of God alone, because it's only in the scripture that we find an adequate view of God and our relationship to him. It's only in the scripture that we find an adequate view of God's relationship to the involvement of our painful circumstances. So it's from scripture that we apply to our heart by the Holy Spirit that we receive grace to trust God in the times of adversity. Times of adversity, there's three things the teacher or the scripture teaches about God, three essential truths about God. Truths, again, that we have to believe apply to our own hearts. If we're to trust him, walk by faith in times of adversity. Number one, God's completely sovereign. Number two, God is of infinite wisdom. And God is of, number three, God is perfect love. God is completely sovereign, infinite wisdom, and perfect in love. And someone has expressed those three truths as they relate to us in this fashion. He says this, God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best. And in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. Master, we're perishing. Aren't you concerned about our situation? Being aroused, he rebuked the wind and the surging waves. They stopped. They became calm. He said to them, "Why aren't you trusting me?" Lloyd Jones, in that book on spiritual depression, points out the faction, or points out the uh, fact that that question asked by Christ, "Where is your faith?" implies that Christ knows they have faith. He's literally asking the question, "Where is it?" which I think gives us a little bit of an understanding of the nature of faith. And very quickly, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, first of all, concerning the nature of faith, first, all the negativity that faith is, first of all, negatively, faith is not merely the subject of feeling or a matter of feeling. He says, faith must take up the whole man, his mind, his intellect, his understanding. Faith is the response to truth. Right, so, so faith isn't some kind of subjective feeling. It's, it's a response to truth. That's what faith is. Where is your faith? And then he says, secondly, Lord Jones says, secondly, faith is not something that acts automatically. It's something that doesn't just happen magically. He said, look, if, if it did, then these men in the boat would have never been alarmed. They, they would have never been fearful or troubled. So I think Lord Jones comes to the correct conclusion. He says, look, faith is an activity that has to be exercised. Faith is something we have to choose to, in, with intentionality, put into operation. So again, when the Lord asked these men in the boat, where's your faith? Christ is really saying to these men, why are you not taking your faith and the truth you believe and then applying it into the situation that you find yourself in? It's because the men had not done that that they find themselves in the anxious position, the terror-filled position that they're in, feeling like they're going to perish. So again, these men here in Luke 8, they're in the boat. Terrible storm comes. The water's pouring into the boat. They're fearful. I think they're going to drown. Christ is fast asleep in the boat. They can't bail the water out fast enough. Looks like they're going to perish. Looks like the boat's going to sink. They're all going to die, all going to be lost. And at that moment, every one of them is being controlled by their circumstances in abject terror, being controlled by their circumstances rather than being controlled by the truth. Lloyd-Jones again, he says, Faith says don't panic. Unbelief says Christ doesn't care. Faith asks what is true. And faith is exercised or applied as a refusal to listen to anything except the truth refusal to listen to anything except the word of God faith exercised is to remind yourselves of what you believe and what you know to be true right again that's something that these guys didn't do in the moment Lloyd-Jones says if only the disciples had stopped for a moment and said now then what about this is it possible that we're going to drown with him in the boat is there anything that he cannot do We've seen miracles. We've seen him turn water into wine. We've seen him heal the blind and the lame and even raise the dead. Is it likely that he's going to allow us himself to be drowned in this way? Lloyd-Jones says, impossible. In any case, he loves us. He cares for us. He's told us that. The very hairs of our heads are all numbered. That is the way he he says in which faith reasons. Faith, he says, says, all right, I see the waves and the billows, but it always puts this but, that faith, uh, that is faith, it holds to the truth, it reasons from what it knows to be fact. And the way, that's the way, he says, to apply faith. These men did not do that. That's why they became agitated and panic-stricken. And you and I will become panic-stricken and agitated if we fail to do the same. Whatever the circumstance, therefore, we stand and wait for a moment, and we say, Admit, it is all as it is, but. But what? Then he answers, But God. But the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole of my salvation. That is what faith does. All things may seem to be against me to drive me to despair. I do not understand what is happening, but I know this. I know that God has loved me so much that he sent his only begotten son into the world for me. I know that while I was an enemy, God sent his son to die on the cross of Calvary uh, for me. He's done that for me while I was an enemy, rebellious and an alien. I know that the Son of God has loved me and gave Himself for me. I know that God, the, the cost of His life's blood—that um, at the cost of His life's blood I have salvation. That I am a child of God, an heir of everlasting bliss. I know that very well. Then I know this: that if we, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall now be saved by His life. He says it is inevitable logic, and faith argues like that. Faith reminds itself of what the Scripture calls the exceeding great and precious promises. Faith says, I cannot believe that he who has brought me so far is going to let me down at this point. It's impossible. It would be inconsistent with the character of God. Faith, having refused to be controlled by circumstances, reminds itself of what it believes and what it knows to be true. That's good, right? Faith active. Faith in action, faith applied. Where's your faith? Again, Christ asks his men, where's your faith? He goes, I know you have it. Put it into practice. You need to know that I'm working out all things together for your good. And for those of who you love me, those who have been called according to my purpose, you love me and I love you and you're loved by the Father. You know that not a head of your hair is ever going to be harmed unless my purpose is uh, 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 or for that to happen uh, your, uh, and for your good I allow it. Know that I've loved you from a, with an everlasting love that again I'll never allow anything into your life to happen to you that ultimately is not for your well-being and ultimately not for your good. Know that if I've loved you eternally I'll take care of you in time. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I know you have faith, man. Put it into practice. Apply your faith. And then again, faith, faith applied really is the response to truth, right? Faith applied is the response to truth. It has to be actively exercised. Faith always hopes in the person of God. Faith always trusts in the God, sovereignty of God. Faith always believes in God's love. Again, the psalmist does that. Deep calls the deep the sound of your waterfalls, your breakers, your waves roll over me faith says I'm going to believe truth I'm going to trust in the sovereignty of God the goodness of God the love of God and I'm I'm going to refuse to be moved off of truth the enemy can come with all kinds of attacks and doubts and you can see the water pouring into the boat you can say I may not completely understand the situation I'm in at the moment but I'm going to take my stand here and still trust in God even if we go down I'm going to choose to believe what God's word says. I'm going to take my stand with him, the one who has loved me eternally, the one who moves in mysterious ways, his wonders perform, he plants his footsteps on the sea, he rides upon the storms. I'm going to trust him. Now, before we move on, don't overlook the fact that these guys in this boat, they might have had little faith or weak faith, They might have struggled greatly in the midst of this situation. But they did go to him, didn't they? They came to a position where they realized that there was nothing they could do to save themselves, so they went to Christ. So don't overlook the value of little faith or weak faith. And isn't that the point of the trial in the first place? To cause us to stop trusting ourselves and to start trusting God and trusting Christ, who alone is our help. So again, these men may have been in absolute terror in the boat, in a panic, thinking they were going to perish and Christ didn't care, but the reality is they did go to him. There was a sense, even a small sense, that he could do something about the problem. They woke him up and said, Master, aren't you going to do something about this situation? Don't you care that we're perishing? Being aroused, he rebuked the wind and the surging waves. They stopped and became calm and said, Where's your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water to obey him? Our faith may not be as strong as we'd like it to be, but a little faith takes us to Christ. And while Christ might chide us for our unbelief and the weakness of our faith, we can bless his name that he never rejects us, right? He never neglects us. He always receives us back. He always loves us. He's promised again to never leave us or forsake us. And in the midst of the storm, he brings us peace. And when we turn to him, we'll experience that peace. We'll experience his presence. We'll experience his power and receive deliverance at his hand. Now let's go back real quickly. And I promise you real quickly, let me just finish this up. Psalm 42, again, in the midst of the overwhelming trials of life, the psalmist acknowledges the sovereignty of God. Deep calls it deep at the sound of thy waterfalls and thy breakers and thy waves, they roll over me. Then he acknowledges the love of God. He's overwhelmed by his predicament, but he can say with great confidence the Lord has directed his love towards him. His unconditional covenantal love, his eternal loving kindness. Verse 8, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. So again, the psalmist is acknowledging the love of God that would not fail him even in the night when his ordeal awakened him. He was still confronted, comforted with the thought of the love of God. And while at times he may have felt God's absence, he could always trust in the truth, and the truth is God loved him. He could trust in the truth that there was never a time where he is the psalmist, there was never a time when he was outside of the love of God or outside of the loving care of God. So while he's still overwhelmed in the midst of his circumstances, he's still trusting God, trusting his sovereignty, trusting the love of God, he acknowledges that God is the source of his strength and stability although he feels that perhaps God's not acting fast enough on his behalf. Verse 9, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? God, my rock. The the psalmist knows that's it. That's the answer. God alone is my refuge. He's my fortress. He's the only place that I can hide from the crashing waves of my troubles. do we sing a song like that? On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is. Do we really believe it when we sing it? Or do we just say the words? Truth is, it probably depends, right? <laughs> probably depends on the moment. Because we're fickle, we we'll always have changing of emotions. But not so God. The psalmist says, "God is my rock. Right? He never changes. He's always the same. Today, yesterday, and forever, remains the same." Again, in His flesh, the psalmist cries out, "Why have you forgotten me?" And again, that reminds us of the words of Christ from the cross in His humanity: "My God, why have you forsaken me?" It's not uncommon. It's not unusual in our depression to feel like God has forsaken us, feel like God has departed, but again, we can't trust our feelings. Feelings are not to be central, the truth is. So again, overwhelmed by circumstances, battling with his adversaries, battling with his own heart, battling over what he knows to be true. His motions are trying to lead him in a different direction. The whole ordeal is beginning to take an effect physically on the psalmist. He writes verse ten, as a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. Well say they say to me all day long, where's your God? We understand that, right? Ten extended times of depression, discouragement. They have real physical manifestations in our life. Well, what's the cure what's the cure? What's the hope? Verse eleven. Again the psalmist confronts his soul, it confronts his depression, he again commands his soul to put his trust in God to think biblically, to praise God with intentionality, and to trust him. Commands his soul to put faith into action. Verse 11, why are you in despair, O my soul, or why are you depressed? What right have you to be discouraged? Why have you become disturbed within me? Why are you in turmoil? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance, my God several translations say i will again give thanks to my god for his saving intervention or i shall again praise him my salvation and my god reminding himself of the truth now just a couple words on verse 40 or chapter 43 cuz i told you the last time that the two are probably linked together so you read both of the psalms together and as you read both of the psalms together and again this will be very quick there appears to be a mood that is rising In the first part of Psalm 42, the psalmist remembers his former days at the temple. He's uh, oppressed by that memory. But then he begins to remember God and his goodness. And and when his enemies are challenging him again, where's your God? He remembers that God is with him always in the daytime, in the nighttime, verse 8. In verse 1, back up in 42, God's absent, but now here he's present. He's his rock. By the time you come to Psalm 43, the, the, God becomes the stronghold for the psalmist. Uh, again, he's guiding him. Uh, the psalmist is trusting in him, hoping in him that God's going to guide him back to the place of worship, take him back to the place of joy, just like he enjoyed in his former days. Verse 1, chapter 43, Vindicate me, O God, plead my case against an ungodly nation, and deliver me from the deceitfulness of unjust men. Again, it's a confident prayer in God's ability to deliver. Verse 2, thou art the guard of my strength, or thou art my stronghold. Why hast thou rejected me? Why do I go mourning of the oppression of my enemy? Uh, Again, at times we feel like God's not concerned about us in our situation. We cry to him in prayer, and seemingly there's no answer to be heard. But that's feelings. It's not fact. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? And again, in essence, I think he's saying, why am I letting the actions of a few godless people around me control my life? Why am I listening to them? That's a good question. Or why am I letting the circumstances of life or negative people around me steal my joy? Because the truth is, no one or no situation, no circumstance can steal our joy unless we choose to give it up. Because Christ says, my peace, I... Give to you. Nobody can rob us of our joy. Nobody can rob us of our peace unless we choose to give it up. Because joy and peace is found as a gift from God through the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, O oh, send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling place. It's an appeal again, an appeal to go back to the word, the truth. Let your word control me. Let your voice be that that guides me, not the voice of the deceiver. Let me follow your plan because it's your word that illuminates my path. Verse 4, then I will go to the altar of God to my God, exceeding joy, my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre, I shall praise thee, O God, my God. So again, you can see the, the countenance of the psalmist is lifted up. He's encouraged his heart with the truth. He, he now wants to worship again. He wants to put his faith into practice. He wants to apply the truth that he knows. He wants to thank God, worship God, praise God, because he finds his ultimate hope and confidence in God. Why are you in despair? Verse five, oh, my soul, why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God. That's the answer. What right do I have to be disquieted in my spirit when I can command my heart to hope in the sovereign who has loved me eternally and into time? And then I can intentionally praise him, for I shall praise him for the help of his presence, my God. So that's it, right? The answer in the times of difficulty and trial is we just need to confront ourselves. We need to confront ourselves. We need to command our heart, command our spirits, put our trust in God. We need to think biblically about everything, about God, our situation, our circumstances. We need to trust in his sovereignty. And then we need to apply faith into our lives. We need to actively apply the faith that God has given us as a gift— And with intentionality, believe what he says to be true and apply it into every circumstance. And again, understanding that difficulties and tribulations come in a fallen world. And those difficulties are ordained by a good God to draw us right back to him. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for this opportunity to look in your word and thankful for the look, the understanding that the psalmist gives here of the issue of discouragement and depression and how it's really to drive us back to you because it's only from you that our hope comes. Help us to apply truth into our life, to live by faith in a practical fashion, to not let the circumstances of life or people in life discourage us, but to... Hope in you, are great God, our sovereign Father who loves us, has promised to never leave us or forsake us. Help us to walk by that truth and apply that truth in every aspect of our life. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.